And it's May the 10th. Yeah, if you show up on May the 9th, you have to practice. I really like that song. But I didn't hear anybody do my favorite part. Where it says, sing it. It's right there. It's written in the lyrics. Every time we sing that song, my wife elbows me and says, don't do that. (laughs) She does. You think I'm kidding? She does. She said, it embarrasses me when you do that. It's one of a long line of things I do that embarrass her, I suspect. (laughs) Open your Bibles to Romans chapter 11, please. Romans chapter 11, page 1135, if you're using a pew Bible. Listen as I read the words of the Apostle Paul to the church at Rome. Romans 11, beginning in verse 1. I say then, God has not rejected His people, has He? May it never be. For I too am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not rejected His people whom He foreknew. Or do you not know what the Scripture says in the passage about Elijah? How he pleads with God against Israel. Lord, they have killed your prophets. They have torn down your altars. And I alone am left and they are seeking my life. But what is the divine response to him? I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. In the same way then, there has also come to be at the present time a remnant according to God's gracious choice. But if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace is no longer grace. What then? That which Israel is seeking for, it has not obtained. But those who were chosen obtained it, and the rest were hardened. Just as it is written, God gave them a spirit of stupor, Eyes to see not and ears to hear not, down to this very day. And David says, let their table become a snare and a trap and a stumbling block and a retribution to them. Let their eyes be darkened to see not and bend their backs forever. I say then, they did not stumble so as to fall, did they? May it never be. But by their transgression, salvation has come to the Gentiles to make them jealous. Now, if their transgression be riches for the world and their failure be riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their fulfillment be? But I'm speaking to you who are Gentiles. Inasmuch then as I am an apostle of Gentiles, I magnify my ministry if somehow I might move to jealousy my fellow countrymen and save some of them. For if their rejection be the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance be but life from the dead? And if the first piece of dough be holy, the lump is also. And if the root be holy, the branches are too. But if some of the branches were broken off and you, being a wild olive, were grafted in among them and became partaker with them of the rich root of the olive tree, do not be arrogant toward the branches. But if you are arrogant, remember that it is not you who supports the root, but the root supports you. You will say then, branches were broken off so that I might be grafted in. Quite right. They were broken off for their unbelief. But you stand by your faith. Do not be conceited, but fear. For if God did not spare the natural branches, neither will He spare you. Behold then, the kindness and severity of God. 
to those who fell severity, but to you, God's kindness. If you continue in his kindness, otherwise you also will be cut off. And they also, if they do not continue in their unbelief, will be grafted in, for God is able to graft them in again. For if you were cut off from what is by nature a wild olive tree and were grafted contrary to nature into a cultivated olive tree, how much more shall these who are the natural branches be grafted into their own olive tree? (coughs) The history of the Christian church and its relations with the Jews is a dark spot on the garment of Christ. Both officially and unofficially, Gentile Christians, real and professed, have harassed, humiliated, persecuted, executed, and driven the children of Abraham from the countries of Europe. It is a dark and sordid history. Even as a child growing up here in America, I can remember anti-Semitic jokes. Jokes that were much more a social commentary than an innocent attempt at humor. Just a couple of weeks ago, I was at a pastor's conference and I heard someone refer to a person who was driving a hard bargain as Jewing the other person down. Beloved, pride and arrogance is never pretty. And nothing is more ugly than religious pride. As if the grace of God came to a person because they deserved it more than others. This is no small topic for us Gentile Christians. The word of the prophet Isaiah is very clear in Isaiah 66 and verse 2. This is the one to whom I will look. To him who is humble and contrite of spirit and trembles at my word. God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to to the humble. So as we undertake together this section of Romans 11, in particular this morning, verses 16 through 24, may God deliver us from the sin of Gentile arrogance. In the back of your bulletin, I've included your outline for this morning's message. Paul uses an agricultural analogy here. An agricultural analogy by which he reminds us of three fundamental statements regarding God's dealings with Israel so that we will avoid the trap of Gentile arrogance. I have them there for you. The first fundamental statement with regard to God's dealings with Israel is that God's relationship with Israel should amaze us. It should amaze us. Look at verse 16. Paul says, And if the first piece of dough be holy, the lump is also. (coughs) The main analogy here is an agricultural one, but Paul is going to set it up first with a very short analogy drawn from the Old Testament. This is the analogy of the first fruits. And Paul gives it here in verse 16 without comment because it was commonly understood. Numbers chapter 15, verses 17 to 21. Moses there writes to the people who are about to enter the land of Canaan and are about to experience their first wheat harvest in that new promised land. That when the harvest comes, the people are to regularly offer to God a first portion of the rough meal, the coarse grain or the coarse meal that is drawn from the harvest and used for baking bread. This first portion 
our parquet in the Greek, was baked into a cake and it was waved before the Lord and thus offered to him. And it signified that the whole batch of dough was holy or set apart to God. That was its purpose. Symbolically, the first piece, the first lump, represented the whole. That was common knowledge to the people of Israel. But what does this reference to a Jewish ceremony have to do with the restoration of the nation of Israel to its place of belief? Well, it's interesting here because this same word is used over in chapter 16 and verse 5. It's also used in 1 Corinthians chapter 16 and verse 15 to refer to first converts from a particular area. To speak of those who are the first converts. So the analogy here, putting those two ideas together, the the inherent property of the first fruit, that is that it represents the whole, and Paul's later use of this exact same word to, to refer to converts gives us the idea that it, Paul is speaking here about the remnant of Israel, that small group of believers who have embraced the Lord Jesus Christ, of whom Paul himself is a member, and he is saying that they symbolically represent the whole of Israel being holy or set apart to God. That's the point. Because the remnant is holy or set apart, the whole of Israel is holy or set apart as well. The use of the word holy is not speaking in a moral sense. He is speaking of it in its fundamental sense of being set apart unto God. Paul is saying that Israel is, although presently hardened in unbelief, are set apart to God. He then bridges from that main point to the second analogy, the analogy of the olive tree, and that is what he is going to develop here for us in the rest of these verses. The present situation of Jewish unbelief and Gentile belief is the temporary outworking of the grace of God and, according to the Apostle Paul, should not be a source of Gentile pride. So bridging on this idea of being set apart, he says, verse 16, if the root is holy, the branches are two. He introduces the analogy of the olive tree. This analogy expresses what God is doing even up to this day among the sons of Abraham and among us Gentiles. With a tree, the root determines the nature of the branches that are attached to it. So in the illustration before us here in verse 16 of the olive tree, it's the same illustration as the first fruit or the lump of dough. If the root is set apart, if the root is holy, then the branches are too. That is, the branches are set apart. It's the same basic point that he was communicating through the analogy of the first fruit. So what is this root? Or who is this root? Most... Uh, Bible commentators understand it to be a reference to the patriarchs. They look over to verse 28, where it says they are beloved for the sake of the fathers. And they understand Paul's reference here to the root as being a reference to the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Some define it a little more narrowly, and they assume it's speaking to that first patriarch, Abraham in particular. And there's certainly a sense in which Abraham is the source or root of the nation of Israel. There's no denying that. But in light of Paul's earlier statements back in chapter uh, 9 and verse 7, where he says, not all who descend from Abraham are the children of Abraham. That is, that being physically descended from him does not guarantee spiritual blessings. I think what he is talking about here when he speaks of the root is not the man Abraham so much as the covenant promise that God made with the man Abraham. 
I believe that what Paul is referring to here in verse 16 of Romans, when he says that if the root be set apart or holy, the branches are too, is a reference to the Abrahamic covenant. The Abrahamic covenant. Since Israel is rooted in that covenant, they are therefore as a nation set apart to God. It is first and foremost their covenant. Now, just to remind you, the Abrahamic covenant is one of the most amazing covenants in all the Bible. In fact, (coughs) I would contend that it is the foundational covenant of the Bible. This amazing, unconditional, 4,000-year-old, multifaceted promise from God to a man whereby that man and his descendants would both receive God's blessings and ultimately extend a portion of those blessings to the entire world via the gospel has got to be the most amazing promise ever recorded. (coughs) It is given to us in Genesis chapter 12. It is then reaffirmed and expanded in Genesis chapter 15 and Genesis chapter 17. Just to remind you, of the promises of this Abrahamic covenant. It is there that God promises a permanent homeland to Abraham and his descendants. It is in the Abrahamic covenant that God promises that he will make Abraham's name great. That is, he will become an incredibly famous and great man. He promises that many nations will spring from the loins of this man. He promises him that a line of kings will come forth from him. He promises that Abraham and his descendants would have a special relationship with God whereby God would personally look out for and watch over them as his own possession. And the culminating promise of this incredible covenant is that Abraham through his descendants, would become the source of worldwide blessings which come to fruition through Jesus the Messiah, the descendant of Abraham. The point that Matthew, by the way, in his gospel, in chapter 1 and verse 1, makes exceedingly clear. Jesus the Messiah, son of David, son of Abraham. Now think with me for a minute about This guy, Abraham. When God (coughs) this promise, Abraham was effectively a Bedouin sheep herder. And he never in his entire lifetime had a permanent homeland. He was a wanderer. Furthermore, the nation that came from his loins ended up as slaves making mud brick For 400 years. When God finally delivered them from their slavery, they were hardly a world class power. Yet God drove out seven nations mightier and more powerful than them in order to give them a homeland that He had originally promised to Abraham. The history of this nation that sprang from Abraham's loins is one of religious compromise and apostasy culminating in the rejection and crucifixion of their long-awaited Messiah. For the past 2,600 years, this nation has lived under the domination of Gentile powers and does to this very day. (coughs) In light of all of this, Paul is making abundantly clear here in this chapter that God still looks on them with favor. Verse 28 again, from the standpoint of God's choice, they are beloved. They are beloved. Someday, Paul says that he will bring, that is, God will bring them back to a place of blessing, both spiritual and physical. Verse 25. 
This is an incredible covenant. It ought to amaze us. All of these future blessings that still remain out there for Israel are rooted in this great Abrahamic covenant and this covenant being unconditional. And we know it's unconditional because in Genesis 15, God alone passed between the severed halves of the animals. This unconditional covenant remains in effect even to this exact moment. To this moment. Verse 16. The root. The root is the Abrahamic covenant. And because the branches are connected to that root, that is, they spring from that root, they are set apart for God also. Now, let's talk a little bit about the analogy of the olive tree. Olive trees were very common in the ancient world, and they would grow for hundreds of years and produce a product that was essential to life in that period of time and in that part of the world. Over time, the branches would die out and new ones would be grafted into that olive tree in order to continue to produce fruit. It was a common experience of the people of that day. So using that common practice as his analogy, Paul then moves forward to teach us a very important lesson on humility. Now before we begin to actually, in verse 17, unpack the analogy itself, We need to make a couple of observations that will help our interpretation of this analogy. The first is very simple. The wild branches refer to Gentiles. These are obvious to you, I suppose. But the wild branches refer to Gentiles who have no natural part in God's great promise to Abraham. You always have to keep that in mind. As Gentiles, they have no natural part in this. And in fact, in Ephesians chapter 2... Verse 12, Paul lays out that. He says, Remember, you are separate from Christ, excluded from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope, which we learned last time was a reference to the resurrection, and without God in the world. Gentiles are wild branches. They have no inherent claim upon the root at all. Secondly, the branches that are broken off refer to the majority of Israel who have stumbled in unbelief. They are the majority here that have been hardened, verse 7. And the third observation, and this one is not as obvious from the English text, that really drives this whole point home, is that the pronoun you, which appears repetitively through these verses... Over and over again, you, you, you is a second person singular you. That is, Paul is speaking to individuals. He is speaking to individuals through this analogy. Individual people who need to hear and learn this important lesson. Let me reinforce that just a moment. He's speaking to you. He's speaking to you. And he's speaking to you. He's not speaking to us. He's speaking to you. This passage is a direct statement to you about arrogance. So pay attention. Beginning here in verse 17. Israel's rejection by God should humble us. That is a fundamental statement. Israel's rejection by God should humble us. Verse 17, But if some of the branches were broken off, and you, singular, being a wild olive, were grafted in among them and became partaker with them of the rich fruit of the olive tree, do not be arrogant toward the branches. But if you are arrogant, remember that it is not you who supports the root, but the root supports you. When God set Israel aside, He cut off, according to the analogy, the unbelieving Jewish branches, and He grafted in wild Gentile branches. Together, the remaining Jewish branches that are still attached and these grafted-in Gentile branches together enjoy for a time 
a period of time, the rich spiritual blessing of the root, that is the Abrahamic covenant. Salvation comes through the Abrahamic covenant. And those that are either naturally part or grafted in enjoy the fruit of that salvation. Now, this is an amazing turn of events. Israel out, Gentiles in. And it brings with it a temptation to boast against Israel. After all, she had rejected and crucified her own Messiah. When she was given the opportunity to repent from that sin after the resurrection, she not only refused to do so, but became hardened and violent in her unbelief. At the same time, pagan Gentiles who were formerly cut off from God and hostile to His ways eagerly embraced Israel's Messiah and flooded into the church. That set up boasting. Boasting. And I don't believe the boasting was just here at Rome. I think it was something Paul had seen over and over again among the Gentile churches that he had planted. This was a real problem. It was a real problem then. Beloved, it is a real problem now. It remains a problem. And this boasting must have been unbearably painful for the Apostle Paul. You remember, he was the one who, back in chapter 9, described his heart as full of great sorrow and unceasing grief over his countrymen who had been broken off. That was his heartbeat. That was his passion. And by the way, under the inspiration of the Spirit of God, I believe that it is God's heartbeat and God's passion too. And so if that is Paul's passion, Paul's heartbeat, God's passion, God's heartbeat, and then we come back with an arrogant boasting over the children of God, the people of God, the descendants of Abraham, got to break his heart. So Paul wants to counter that sinful pride. That sinful pride that wells up so quickly in each and every one of our hearts. And he does so by reminding us that we are not branches sprung from the root like Israel. Instead, we're a graft brought in from the outside. Remember what Jesus said to the woman at the well? Salvation is of the Jews. John chapter 4 and verse 22. Don't ever, ever forget that. While your ancestors were perishing in pagan darkness, aliens and strangers, without God and His promises the descendants of Abraham were enjoying unhindered access to the great covenant of God. Think back upon your own family tree. You won't have to go very far until you see its pagan roots. The vast majority of us sitting here in this room today can a matter of not too many generations trace it back to the darkness of paganism. So Paul says those branches that are still a part of the tree, the remnant, and the great quantity of branches that have been broken off, remember that the Abrahamic covenant is theirs and you are only a secondary beneficiary. Therefore, you must not disdain them or their heritage. Now, we can see the depth of the animosity, the depth of the prejudice between Jew and Gentile here in the church in Rome by simply turning over a couple of chapters to chapter 14 and the deep problems they were having over what kind of food to be eaten. Chapter 14, verse 3, Let not him who eats regard with contempt him who does not eat, and let not him who eats not or does not eat judge him who eats for God has accepted him. In the very people of God, the very church of God, 
We've got this process going on where there is this prejudice, this animosity from Gentile to Jew and a turn around and turning around of Jew judging Gentile. Deep-seated problems. You know how easy it is to say that we believe that salvation is by grace, totally undeserved, right? But to somehow act like we've done something, we've done something to deserve it. We often view unbelievers with disdain. We look down on their unbelief. We mock their moral and spiritual darkness rather than weeping for their souls. It's very, very easy to fall into this trap. Paul goes on in verse 19, and he says, You will say then, branches were broken off so that I might be grafted in. Quite right. They were broken off for their unbelief, but you stand by your faith. Do not be conceited, but fear. For if God did not spare the natural branches, neither will He spare you. Paul anticipates here the next stage of Gentile arrogance. <clears throat> he voices the common idea that Israel's fall was designed by God so that Gentiles will take their place. And Paul agrees with that statement up to a point here. You see it, verse 20, he says, quite right. Up to a point, that is true. But the idea that God cut off Israel for the sake of the Gentiles, that is that he, he cut them off, He trimmed them away in order that He might bring us in and to replace them, misses the reason for their stumbling and the reason for Gentile inclusion. It's unbelief and faith. That the whole issue is about who believes and who doesn't believe. That grounds the whole thing in the grace of God. It puts it right back on the mercy of God. Those who remove, or excuse me, it removes all the basis of human boasting, all feelings of superiority. If it is only by faith that you stand, and it is only by unbelief that they were severed, then the whole thing resolves itself in God and takes away all reason to boast. It's when we recognize that our salvation is completely and totally dependent upon the grace of God, apprehended by faith. Paul says should cause us to fear. Do you see that, verse 20? Do not be conceited, but fear. Simply put, beloved, we have no claim on the mercy of God. No claim at all on His mercy. Israel has the promises to Abraham, and yet because of their unbelief, God cut them off. Certainly if you as a Gentile, without any of Israel's sacred promises, manifest unbelief, then you cannot expect God to look any more favorably on you. This verse wipes out all notions of God being merciful to you because of your parents' faith. All notions that God is being merciful to you because of your church membership. All notions that God is favorable and kind to you because of your baptism, because of your ethnicity, because of your intellect, because of your social standing, or because of any other thing. It is by grace through faith, and that not of itself. It is a gift of God. True humility. True humility is a constant awareness of the perils to faith, the dangers of coming up short. And that drives us repeatedly back to the gospel and our need to reacquaint ourselves with its redeeming message, to renew our faith in its transforming power. Unbelief lurks at the doorway for every single one of us. It is constantly a fight of faith, is it not? 
We need the gospel. In fact, one of my favorite books and one of our best sellers over in that bookstore is a little teeny, really, it's more just a little more than a pamphlet. It's called The Gospel Primer. The Gospel Primer. Many of you have it and have read it. Others of you, if you don't have it, you should get it and read it. It's about preaching the gospel to ourselves, and it rehearses what that gospel is. Beloved, we stand by our faith. That's what Paul says. Do you see it? Verse 20, they were cut off for unbelief. You stand by your faith. Second person singular, he's speaking to you. He's saying that your access here is is faith-based. And faith is under constant attack. Constant peril. Unbelief lurks close at hand for every single one of us. We need to fight it. We need to fight it. Do not be conceited, but fear. Behold, verse 22, the kindness and severity of God. To those who fell, severity, but to you, God's kindness. If you continue in His kindness, otherwise you also will be cut off. Wow. It's a hard verse. Some find in this statement here the notion that as a follower of Jesus Christ that you can lose your salvation. That it can be taken away from you. A statement like that would run contrary to what Paul spent so long laboring with us to teach us in Romans chapter 8. It's not likely that a few chapters later that he contradicts himself or changes his mind. So what does he mean here? If you continue in kindness, otherwise you will be cut off. Remember the context. The overall context of this is Israel's fall and individual Gentile inclusion in the Abrahamic covenant. Remember this as well. God ordains not only the ends, but the means to the ends. He brings about His great plan, not by some sort of supernatural intervention, but He brings it about through means, and in this era, using providence, often through what appear to be natural means, like the preaching of the gospel. He gives us this warning here that he might promote continuance in faith. The warning of the consequences of those who do not continue is one of the means by which God purifies his people. I've used this illustration before when I walk one of my grandchildren across the street. I say to them, hold on to Grampy's hand. And then I place my hand around theirs. As we cross the street, let me ask you, does the child's security rest upon their grip on Grampy's hand or my grip on theirs? You know the answer, don't you? Yet I tell them, hold my hand. Do not let go of my hand. Well, in a similar way, God says to you this morning, You that have placed your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, do not let go of His hand. Do not slip into unbelief. Do not allow your heart to grow cold or careless to the things of God. Do not allow an attitude of pride or the prejudice to grow within you. These are evidences of unbelief. Rebuke them. Rebuke them at their first occurrence. Wash yourself in the gospel of Jesus Christ again over and over and over. Rekindle your faith. Commentator John Murray writes, speaking of this section of the letter to the Romans, he says, quote, If there is no such thing as continuance in the favor of God in spite of apostasy, 
There is no such thing as continuance in the favor of God in spite of apostasy. God's saving embrace and endurance are correlative. That is, they're related to each other. Hold on to my hand, he says. Hold on to my hand. This, by the way, is not the only place where the Apostle Paul uses this kind of language. Over in Colossians chapter 1. Verse 22, he says, He has now reconciled you in His fleshly body through death in order to present you before Him holy and blameless beyond reproach if indeed you continue in the faith firmly established and steadfast and not moved away from the hope of the gospel that you have heard, which was proclaimed in all creation under heaven, of which I, Paul, was made a minister. There are many places in the New Testament where we are warned that unbelief lies close at hand, that the need to to embrace by faith, not just once, some long time ago, but moment by moment, day by day, the glorious gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ is the means by which we endure to the end. We heard a couple of baptisms to begin this service. Both of them expressed that they had placed faith or professed faith in the Lord Jesus Christ at a very young age. I think it was six for both of them. Beloved, it's not about what happened at six years old. It's not about accepting Jesus when you're six years old. It's not about praying a sinner's prayer when you're six years old. It is about a moment by moment, day by day, month by month, year by year, faith, embrace of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's what it's about. Do not look back. Look present. It does not matter what you once said, once believed. What matters is what do you believe right now? Can God hold on to His children? Talk to me. You bet. Salvation isn't of you to begin with. It's all of Him. But it is access through faith. And it is a faith that is a moment by moment, day by day, year by year, continual present reality of your life. Paul goes on here in verse 23. Teaches us one more fundamental statement. That is that Israel's restoration by God shouldn't surprise us. First, their covenant should amaze us, or their relationship, that is, should amaze us. Their rejection should humble us. But finally, their restoration shouldn't amaze us. Shouldn't amaze us at all. In fact, you know what? It's exceedingly logical that God recovers His ancient people. Verse 23, and they also, if they do not continue in their unbelief, will be grafted in, for God is able to graft them in again. This equal treatment that he's just been speaking of, of being cut off as a consequence of unbelief, is used by Paul as a basis of a positive hope for Israel's restoration. Now, in human terms, that hope might be misplaced, right? Right? particularly in light of Jewish resistance to the gospel. And I don't know if you've ever tried to share the gospel with Jewish people, but it is a difficult process. But notice Paul doesn't ground the hope here in Israel, but he grounds it in God. Look again. For God is able, the end of verse 23. Do you see that? For God is able. This is a reference to the power and strength of God the power and strength of God to overcome the stubbornness and remove the unbelief. Exactly what it says in verse 26, Thus all Israel will be saved, just as it is written, the deliverer will come from Zion. He will remove ungodliness from Jacob. 
removed your unbelief? Who extended himself to you while you were in darkness? Is it all that surprising that he would do the same for his beloved people with whom his covenant promise remains unbroken? What Paul speaks of here in verse 23 is a possibility. By the time he gets to the next verse, it becomes a certainty. He says, For if you were cut off from what is by nature a wild olive tree and were grafted contrary to nature into a cultivated olive tree, how much more shall those who are the natural branches be grafted into their own olive tree? Grafting a wild olive branches into a cultivated trunk Paul says, is contrary to nature. It's not the way the thing's normally done. It's not the way it was done. In fact, some commentators, they read this and they say, Paul must have been a city dweller. He has no idea how grafting works. No. He does know how grafting works. And in fact, the reality that he knows how grafting works leads him to this final point. We should expect... God to graft the cultivated branches back in again. They were originally part of the tree. Their return to the tree is easier to understand than the grafting in of alien wild olive branches. That's the point he's making. If God could graft you in, how much more do you see at the end of verse 23 or 4 that how much more again? If he could grab you in and you're an alien. <laughs> Some of you are more alien than others. If he could grab you in. How much more is he going to graft in those that belong? That's his point. The restoration, the future restoration of Israel is a more probable event than the introduction of Gentiles into the promises of the Abrahamic covenant. Far more. Far more probable. They say it's the classic how much more kind of an argument. So that's basically this. If God can save Gentiles out of their darkness, their idolatrous unbelief, their gross immorality, He can lead them to believe on the Messiah, a Messiah that's not even their own? And how much more? Is He able to lead Israel to adopt their own Messiah at that time when He graciously removes their unbelief? One writer said it this way. A man may leave a large portion of his estate to the son of a stranger. But how much more will he leave to his own natural son? I like that. You and I are sons of a stranger. God has given you a lot. He's given me a lot. How much more? Will he give to the children of Abraham? As I said at the beginning, ethnic and religious pride is a deadly combination. Deadly to our own souls. So what I want to do with you this morning is I want to give you a little time of meditation. This is what we're going to do, all right? Listen carefully. I'm going to pray here in a moment. And while, while I'm praying, the instrument, instrumentalist will come up. After I finish praying, I'm going to give you a period of silence that you might search your own heart. Ask the Spirit of God to search your heart that there might be any ethnic pride, any prejudice that's rooted within there. Any sense of superiority over... Another group of people 
any sense of superiority over those who have not received the gracious gift of salvation? If you've demonstrated a haughty spirit towards those who are in unbelief, this is the time for you to repent of such things. Let the Spirit of God search your heart. Let Him break your heart. Let Him cause you to throw yourself entirely upon His mercy and grace. After that time of meditation, the instruments will begin playing. Once they begin playing, the service is dismissed, okay? Join me while I pray. Oh God, we need this message. We need it, our Father, because our hearts are corrupt. Because pride is deeply rooted within and is ever there to well its ugly head and create all kinds of mischief. We confess, our Father, that we are guilty, at least to some degree, of the same kinds of sin that Paul is rebuking here. And, and Lord, his use of the personal pronoun, that singular pronoun, you, just drives that reality ever deeper into our hearts. This is a message not for the guy next to us in the pew, our Father, it's for us. It's for me. And so, Lord God, as we take a moment of time to allow Your Spirit to search our hearts, I pray that He would do exactly that. May there be not a room or a closet, not a corner nor an alley within our heart where He would not go and search and shine the light of the Word of God and reveal the ugliness within. Father, we go into the Easter season when we celebrate the incredible resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ, our future hope of glory. We have the only true message of salvation. We have the greatest news to proclaim, and yet our Father, if it is proclaimed with an attitude of arrogance or haughtiness, then the message is tarnished. So, Father, as we prepare to receive many visitors, many guests, many friends and family, many, many people who do not know Jesus Christ, then, Lord, we want to be a gracious people. We want to have an attitude of humility. And so search our hearts right now, Lord, and root out this pervasive evil. 